Derek Pippen have been here from 9.30 and 10.30 and 2 and last night and tonight. And some of you that are visiting, this isn't your first visit. And personally, I appreciate your presence very, very much. We have a good-looking crowd, and there's quite a few of you. So I am glad that you have chosen on this Tuesday, on this absolutely gorgeous day, where you could be out even still enjoying the outdoors of the, as the sun sets to the west and the evening zephyrs begin to blow. You could be sitting out under the tree and on the porch swing or out on the lake or just finishing up about the 18th hole on the golf course, whatever. But you're not. You're here. And so I appreciate it. And I know that God does as well, as do the angels, I'm sure, in heaven, as I'm convinced that they are interested, just as surely as God is, though not in the same way, in what we do here. And the main thing we are here to do is to share this word right here. As Randy earlier said in his opening remarks, that, you know, if anyone needs to respond in any way to the Lord's invitation tonight, that response in reality is a response to the word of God. Because it's only through knowledge of this word that I can develop a saving faith. Romans chapter 10, verse 17. And so my prayer is that what I've got to say and what any preacher that stands in this pulpit or any other pulpit in any of the buildings in which our brotherhood meets, that each and every time the focus of the message, though we need to apply it, because the Word of God is not culturally bound. It's not bound by time. It is relevant. I don't care if it's 21st century America or 19th century Europe or 23rd century wherever, if the world stands that long, this book will be relevant. And it doesn't matter what culture it may be dealing with. This book is relevant. And I hope that we make that point every time we stand up to declare the Word of God. I realize there are unique and sometimes sometimes unique. In reality, there's nothing new under the sun. And every situation that we face, even though the temptation itself may be unique to me, the principles behind it, it's been played out over and over and over again on the stage of life since the Garden of Eden. And yet our goal always is to make sure that what is said is backed up and based upon and found within of thus saith the Lord. The people of God need to be recognized as people of the book. And there was a time a generation ago when I was growing up that the Lord's people, the Lord's church, was known as a group, was known as being a people of the book. Sadly, I don't hear that all that often anymore. I, in fact, there's a lot of things you don't hear that you used to hear. Some maybe are good, but most of them, I kind of wish we were still hearing some of those same things. And yet we have to be very careful because my generation, the post-war baby boom folks, we have decided that we're so much smarter than, as Tom Brokaw put it, the greatest generation. And we know more about what God says than anybody that came before us. And that's probably about standard operating procedure for most generations. But the trouble is we have failed to grow up enough to realize, for, the, for a lot of us at least, that, you know, this book hadn't changed since my daddy, you know, was little and his daddy was little and so on and so on. We need to get back to the book because it's only in the Word of God that I have any hope at all of the abundant life here and eternal life in the hereafter. I mean, it's critical. 
that we study this word. You know, there's signs. There are things we can look for to tell us that we're not studying enough. For instance, if the preacher says that the text for this morning's sermon is from the book of Genesis and you have to look at the table of contents, probably you're not studying enough. If you keep falling for it every time the preacher says, turn to first Hezekiah, you probably, hello, anyway, you probably need to study the book more. Actually, it was a top ten list I got on there, but the big one, the one that I thought was it, that there's the sign that I'm not getting in the book enough is that my kids are beginning to ask questions about that bedtime story that you keep telling them, Jonah, the little shepherd boy, and his ark of many colors. And that's a good sign that you probably ought to spend a little more time in this book right here. And there are others, but anyway. Turn to Luke chapter 22. We want to read a few verses, I do, from Luke 22, beginning at verse 39. And I'm going to read through verse 46. Coming out... He, that's Christ, went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. When he rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. Then he said to them, Why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. I want you to picture with me in your mind for a moment that you're standing in front of this huge vat, this huge vat, and this thing is filled with a foul-smelling, disgusting, and vile liquid. I mean, it's just, you look in there, and it's all black, and it's gross, and you, you look over the edge, and you see human body parts floating in this, in this just cesspool of garbagey black liquid. There's an arm, and a leg, and an eyeball, and internal organs that are just floating all on the surface and then someone tells you that by the way not only are there human body parts in here but this liquid this vat is infected with mad cow disease the AIDS virus and bird flu I want you to picture that for a minute and then picture yourself being submerged in it I mean completely under the surface you're drinking it You're breathing it. You're tasting it. You're smelling it. And I want us to realize that does not even come close to imagining what it was like for the Holy Son of God to be submerged on that cross in the filth and the death of sin. I have no doubt that Jesus as a human being Partly what he wanted to avoid on that cross was the physical pain. I'm sure that was part of it, but I'm convinced that was not the ultimate cup he was wanting to not have to endure. He expressed that which he did not want to endure there on that cross. When he cried out in absolute spiritual, physical, emotional agony, My God, my God! 
Why have you forsaken me? That's what he didn't want to happen. That's the cup he wanted to avoid. He, when he came to this life, you remember Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, have the same attitude, or let this mind be in you that is also in Christ Jesus, have the same attitude as Christ, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he emptied himself of all of the glories of heaven, came down to this earth, took on himself the form of a man, being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. The point is, Jesus emptied the glories of heaven out of his life to come down here to this earth. And then on that cross, God poured all the ugliness of sin in all the empty places where the glory of heaven had been. And Jesus Christ became the container to hold all the sin from Adam until he returns. To the point that even apparently, at least momentarily, his only father, the one from whom he was the only begotten, looked away. So that Jesus endured that at least part of that time completely alone. He had never experienced that throughout all eternity. Never had the Godhead been separated at all. And I don't want to make too much of this, but the bottom line is this was huge. We emphasized the physical suffering, and that was huge too. But the greater sacrifice was the filth of sin dumped all over our Savior by his own Father so that you and I don't have to die in that vat, so that we, through the blood he shed that day, can overcome the vile nature and the ugliness and the putridness of sin. He endured it. So I don't have to. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, For he, God the Father, made him, God the Son, who knew no sin, he made him to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What's that? We need to understand that. God the Father made God the Son to be sin so that you and I can be righteous in the one who the Father made to be sin, Jesus the Christ. It's amazing. I mean, we can't really even fathom because we've never been to heaven yet. So I, I just trying to imagine what Jesus gave up to come down here and live and die for me. I mean, he left voluntarily the place that we're giving our lives to, to get to. And he just said, I'll leave. You don't have to make me my choice. I'll empty myself of all this glory, and I'll go down there where Satan holds sway, and I'll go down there as a defenseless little human baby. And I'll grow up just like every other little human boy, and I'll fulfill my mission. And then I'll die. The container for all the sin of mankind. Can you imagine? Well, we really can't, but we do the best that we can. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, tells us that Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. He didn't like it any more than you or I would have liked it. It was bad enough to be crucified. It was the most embarrassing, the most socially deplorable and despicable 
execution method that, that humans had devised up to that point. I mean, it was generally reserved for just the, the lowest of the low and the criminals. Or the, it, it was terrible. People came by and laughed at them and poked fun at them, and they did it to Jesus. Mocked him, spit at him, laughed at him, insulted him. I mean, the Romans knew what they were doing to make death as painful in every area that they could, socially, emotionally, physically. They did it all. Crucifixion was horrible. He didn't want to go. There in the cross, he prayed three times, let this cup pass from me. And yet he went. That's what amazes me. He didn't even flinch. He went straight to the cross. And when they offered him in the very beginning, that wine mingled with gall, he let it touch his lips and he spit it out and said, I don't want it. You know why? It wasn't because he wasn't thirsty. You know he was thirsty with all the blood loss he had endured. He needed desperately to replenish as much liquid as he could. But he wouldn't drink the wine mingled with gall because that was the only humanitarian thing the Romans did for people. Because wine mingled with gall served as a pain deadening agent. And so they would offer it to him so at least the pain of the nails would not be quite as severe as it would be without it. When Christ realized what it was, when it touched his lips, he said, I don't want it. Because he knew that he had to endure every single ounce of pain and every other negative thing associated with that death. And he had to do it perfectly so that he could be my sacrifice. It's amazing. It is absolutely amazing. How in the world could he look at that horrible scene knowing that it's coming and not bat an eye and walk straight up that hill and voluntarily lay that hand out there and that hand out there. And as they crossed his feet and began to didn't resist, when all it would have taken was a thought. He wouldn't even have had to move. All he had to do was just think, I want to stop this. And he would have had, as he said himself, 12 legions of angels at his disposal had he wanted them. And we go back to Second Kings, around chapter 18, I believe it is, and you see one angel wiped out 185,000 Assyrians in Sennacherib's army in one night. He could have had as many as he wanted. He was saying about 72,000, but technically the point 12 to me indicates completeness. He was telling Pilate that he could have every angel he wanted. As many as he needed could be right there if that was what he wanted. Well, that was his choice. It's all he had to do is he didn't even flinch. Never gave it another thought. Once the garden passed and he knew it was the Father's will, he never gave it another thought. He just went straight with whatever was involved in that sacrifice. So you and I could be here tonight and more importantly, hopefully through the blood of Christ can be in heaven with him for eternity. How did he do that? How, how, do I, how do I handle great challenges to my faith? You know, what do I do? The title for the lesson is How to Face Your Golgotha. What is my Golgotha? What might it be? For instance, what happens when the doctor says you've got three months tops? Or even worse, when he says that to your spouse? 
Maybe he tells you, Alan, Janice has three months, tops. That's ten times worse than telling me I've got three months. How do you handle that? What do you do? The dean says to you college kids, I'm sorry, but you can't graduate until you take this course over again when you already had your heart set on getting the sheepskin and walking with your classmates. It's not going to happen. I'm sorry. You're going to have to come back to summer school. How do you handle that? The law in turn goes through all that education, all gets through law school, and then the boss calls him or her in and says, I'm sorry, but you didn't pass the bar. We can't use you here. You'll have to go somewhere else. Or maybe the policeman says, Mom, Dad, you'll have to wait till the judge sets bail before you can get him out. Or perhaps it's when your boss calls you in and says, you know, I'm really sorry. But the company hadn't been doing as well as we had projected. We've got to cut back somewhere. You're going to have to go find another job. What do you do? How do you handle that? Or you come home from work and your wife or your husband, your spouse says, I, I just don't love you anymore. I'm done with it. I just don't love you anymore. What do you do? You know, where do you turn when there's absolutely nowhere to turn? Where do you stand when the rug's been yanked out from under you and you can't even find your balance? What do you do? when you And, and invariably, most of us, some of us, have already faced at least one or two of these already. But if we live long enough, unless we're just unbelievably fortunate, this or something very similar... If it hasn't already, it will happen. It will happen. What do you do? How do you handle that? How do you face that difficulty? How, how do I face my Golgotha? Well, Jesus left us an example that night that he faced his. And you remember 1 Peter 2.21, he left us an example. As Peter said, that we should follow in his steps. Let's see if we can't learn something from the only begotten Son of God. First thing I want us to notice, when Jesus knew that his Golgotha was coming soon, what's the first thing he did? He sought out a place where he could privately address his problem. See, Jesus was a popular fellow among most folks. He was in great demand and, and you never heard him complain. And in fact, he was an amazing man. It just it astounds me. He never, ever seemed to be in a hurry. Did you notice that? He got more accomplished than, than most people by a long, but he never seemed to be in a hurry to get out of anywhere, to get into anywhere. He just kind of went through life, and everywhere he went, as is recorded in the book of Acts, he went about doing good. It's astounding just from a human standpoint how one man could accomplish all that he accomplished and never seemed to be frazzled, never seemed to be stressed. The, the hectic pace didn't seem to get to him that much. But he was always in demand. Mark chapter 6, verse 31, For there were many coming and going, and they didn't even have time to eat. You know, there was more than once that Jesus in his ministry, I'm sure, tried to sit down to eat, and people wouldn't let him. They just they wanted him to either teach them, heal them, you know, come with me to my, my mom's house, she's sick, come to my dad. You know, I've got this, I've got that. Jesus, what do you think about this? What do you think? I mean, he could, sometimes he couldn't even eat, and yet... You never read about him complaining to God, saying, God, would you please slow this thing down a little? Give me a break. No, no, no. He didn't complain. 
He was in demand all the time. However, on the night that he knew he was about to face his Golgotha, I want you to notice, on this night, he did not make time for publicans and sinners. The great physician's office was closed this night. Why? Because he knew what was coming. And he had a problem. And he knew even the Son of God needed that alone time to deal with the problem. So he closed his office. And he got off by himself. He got out of eyesight of the multitude. He got out of earshot of the apostles. And he got in touch with his Father in heaven. That's what he did. Whenever I'm facing a difficulty, or whenever perhaps I've heard one of these things, you know, I've lost my job, my child has been arrested, whatever it may be, when that happens, understand that even though people may need you, people may need me, it's important that I follow the example of Christ. Get away for at least a little while and get in touch with God. That's what Jesus did. That's the first thing He did. I need to find a place to sort things out in my own mind. So that I, to do that, I need to separate, contemplate, and meditate. And I can't do that in a crowd. I can't even do that in a crowd of good friends and people that I love. No, no, no. Jesus got away where there was some peace and some solitude. He got away from the crowd. He got away from the hectic hustle and bustle of his daily ministry life. He got off where he could rest at least a little and commune with his Father. You know, I will find in my life, and I have, and I'm sure you have too, that a lot of times things that just look horrible, they're not quite so daunting after a decent night's rest. You know, the first thing God told Elijah, you remember when Elijah, he, had, he, had, he was so excited and he had won the battle over the, you know, the, the contest with the, with the 450 prophets of Baal and, of course, had them all put to death. And he had won this huge victory. And then when Jezebel, Ahab's wife, heard about it, she said, I'm telling you right now that my name's not Jezebel. And if it is, then he's going to be just like those prophets by the end of the day, basically. Well, Elijah got wind of that and scared him to death. And he got so down, and he took off. And he headed out into the wilderness. And when he finally settled and stopped, and what's the first thing that God told the depressed Elijah to do? Well, he sent him food. Because Elijah needed to eat a good meal. God recognizes that when I'm facing unbelievable stress and difficulty, I don't need to ignore my physical body. Because I will be able to deal emotionally and spiritually with these difficult things when my body is in reasonably good shape. Don't go without food. Don't go without sleep. Now, I know it's hard to sleep sometimes. You know, you walk in and your wife says, I don't love you anymore. You know, your first thought is not, well, you know, I think I'll go lay down. That's not typically. But things are a little bit less difficult when I'm rested and when I've had a decent meal. When do you normally get stressed out with your kids? When you're tired. When do you and your spouse normally kind of get that little yeah-yeah thing going when you haven't had enough sleep and both of you are stressed over the job or the kids or 
church or whatever it is. And generally speaking, that doesn't happen as often when I've had a decent rest. See, Jesus understood that from a spiritual perspective. That's why he invited sinners to come to him and rest. Matthew 11, beginning at verse 28. All you that labor and are heavy laden, come unto me and I will give you rest. Come, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden light. He didn't say, wait until you're perfect and unload all your sins and then come see me. No, he said, you bring your sins with you. You bring your whole load right here with me and I'll help you bear it. Because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He will help. He invites us to come to him and rest. God Almighty knows the importance of rest. He told Peter, James, and John, in fact, finally, when he came back that last time in the garden, Matthew 26, verse 45, sleep on now and take your rest. He knew they should have been praying, but he also knew as humans they were tired and that they might as well sleep a little. And in fact, in Mark 6, 31, where it says they were coming and going so much that they didn't even have time to eat, Jesus told his apostles, come apart by yourselves and rest for a while. Don't feel bad when you need a short break because it's those times of recreating, those recreational times that empower me to be more effective on the other side. Now, that doesn't mean that I quit the church work of the church you know, for six months at a time and, and act like, no, 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 I'm talking about taking an appropriate break every now and then. Get some rest. Charge up your batteries. Eat right. Get a little exercise. Take care of yourself. Get away from the stress whenever possible. And we'll be better off. We'll be able to handle it. Jesus understands the need for rest. In fact, He's promised that one day He's coming back and if we stay with Him, He's going to give us eternal rest. You remember 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7, And to you who are troubled, He wants to give rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels. And in Revelation chapter 14, verse 13, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. Here's the first lesson. Lesson one. When I'm facing Golgotha, Spend some time in Gethsemane. Get away, separate, contemplate, meditate. But then I want us to notice something else about Jesus that night that he was facing Golgotha. It's true that he got away on his own, but at the same time, he also sought the company of close friends. He wanted solitude, but you notice the solitude didn't get him too far away from his friends. He took three of them on into the garden, and he kept coming back to check on them. It's interesting. Jesus alternated between his father and his friends. His father and his friends. Because not only does Jesus understand the importance of solitude, rest, and contemplation and meditation, but he also understands the importance of relationships. In fact, that's what Christianity is. The whole Christian concept, it's a relationship between me and my Creator, between the created and the Creator, between the child and the Father, between me and my Savior. It's a relationship between me and my brothers and sisters. The whole thing, is it's, it's all relationships. And Christ understood that. Friends were very important to Him. In fact, 16 times 
in the New Testament the word friend is used. In 12 of those times, either Jesus spoke the word or it was spoken in his presence. 12 out of the 16 times the word friend is used in the New Testament. Jesus was there. In fact, he is, as Proverbs 18.24 says, the friend that sticks closer than a brother, and as Luke 7.34 says, the friend of publicans and sinners. God did not create us to be lone rangers. In fact, even the lone ranger had Tonto. They'll never forget that. Friends are important, but he didn't intend for us to go through this life alone. It's one reason Jesus' death, among other things, paid for the church. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. God knows you need a family. Now, Hillary Clinton says it takes a village, but she doesn't know what she's talking about. But it does take a family if I want to have opportunity for heaven. I don't need to try to do it by myself. I need to walk arm in arm, hand in hand, side by side, shoulder to shoulder, heart to heart, head to head with people that share a common faith and a love and a desire to please God. See, Solomon instructed us to pay attention to friendships because one day, as surely as I'm breathing, I'm going to need that friendship. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 10, Do not forsake your own friend or your father's friend, nor go to your brother's house in the day of calamity. Better is a neighbor nearby than a brother far away. And in this transient society in which we live today in this country, many of you know that firsthand. If we had to depend upon our physical, earthly family, sometimes we're so separated geographically that it's almost impossible. But it sure is nice to have a neighbor next door or right down the street or at the local congregation that I know I can count on just like he is a brother. Better is a neighbor nearby than a brother far away. And good friends, they keep me sharp. They keep me sharp. As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. Proverbs chapter 27 Verse 17, a good friend won't cut me any slack when I don't need slack to be cut. He understands there's times he's going to have to butt heads with me and be just as tough as I am if he's going to help me become the person I can become. If I need to, if I needs iron to hit me upside the head with iron, then that's what happens. That's what a friend will do. A friend is there to help me be better. And sometimes that means he needs to be just as tough as I am and vice versa. That's what friends do for us. And it's never wise to keep all of our problems bottled up inside. Again, the wise man, Proverbs 15, verse 22, without counsel, plans go awry, but in the multitude of counselors, they are established. Lesson number one, facing Golgotha, spend some time in Gethsemane. Lesson number two, don't try to climb Golgotha by yourself. Don't Climb it by yourself. Let some friends go with you. You got that problem? Life has just absolutely knocked the breath clean out of you? Don't get it back by yourself. Spend some time in Golgotha, but take some friends. Don't climb it by yourself. But then I want us to notice a third thing. This will be our final lesson from Jesus in the garden. Jesus sought comfort from his father, and he did that through prayer. Jesus used the weapon of prayer, and he prayed intimately. Matthew 26, 39 and Mark 14, 36 record how that Jesus prayed, Abba, Father. Abba is an Aramaic term. It's a term of endearment. 
it's kind of like when, when your child calls you daddy. You know, I mean, it, it's just not like a you know, father, daddy, but it takes a special person to be a daddy. You know, a lot of guys can be fathers, but it takes a special guy to be a daddy. That's what I want to be. Or to be a pawpaw. That's, that's the real special one, but we won't go there because time's running out and I can talk about him for, for the rest of the night. But the point is, that's how the Lord addressed his father. Now, I realize... That when we go to God in prayer, we do not need to be disrespectful, and I'm not saying that at all. And particularly, those of us that are asked to lead the minds of the audience in a public prayer, we need especially to be aware that we're not praying simply for ourselves at that point. We are striving to lead a congregation, a group of people's thoughts to the throne of the Father. And so from time to time, it may be that even in a public prayer, a little bit more of a formal approach may even be proper. But when I'm praying alone, I need to realize he's my father. He deserves every ounce of respect. In fact, Jesus said you better fear him, as a matter of fact, because he has the power to destroy both body and soul in hell. But at the same time, scriptures tell me draw near to God and he'll draw near to me. I need to understand he is a loving daddy just as surely as he is a stern father. He is long-suffering, 2 Peter 3.9. He is patient. He loves us like a mother loves her children. He loves us more than we can comprehend so much that he let Jesus die for us when we were still spitting in his face. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. He's my father. He's my daddy. He loves me. And I love him. I love to hear little children pray. Because generally they just kind of talk like they're talking to a friend. I have to believe when Jesus said, except you become as little children, you shall in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. And then in Matthew 19 when he said, allow the little children to come to me. For of such are the kingdom of heaven. I have to believe that in addition to the innocence of childhood, part of that innocence that I believe that maybe Jesus would like for us to have is a bit more of a closeness with our Father in prayer like those children have. You know, it's fantastic to hear a child pray until he's been to church enough and he learns those trite, repetitious phrases that we all use and then you hear him start just repeating the same old thing over and over and over and you think, oh my, where did I go wrong? You know, we, we, need, we need to depend upon prayer. Christ gave us an excellent example. Matthew 26, 37, 38 tells us that Jesus prayed fervently. Mark 14, 33 says about that prayer that he was sore amazed and very heavy. And then as we already read in our text at the beginning this evening, Luke says he sweated like great drops of blood. And I'm not a medical professional, but from what I understand, it could be possible that capillaries in the forehead just within the skin could, under unbelievable stress, actually pop, and it's possible perhaps to sweat drops of blood. And if it could have been done, I have no doubt in my mind that my Savior was under such duress that night that very possibly that is what happened. But he not only prayed intimately, he not only prayed fervently, but he prayed repeatedly. 
Now you say, wait a minute, Jesus taught against praying with repetition. No, he didn't. He taught against useless, futile, vain repetition. He taught against saying things just so people will go, Woo! What a great prayer leader that guy is. That misses the whole point. Now he never pre-taught against repetition in prayer. In fact, he did exactly the opposite. You remember in Luke 18, when his disciples asked him to teach us to pray, and he gave them a parable, told them a story about a man that was a judge, and this man didn't regard God or humans. He didn't care about what people needed, wanted. He didn't care about what God wanted. But this woman kept coming to him, and there was a dispute. And she came, and she came, and she came, and finally he granted her her request just to get her off his back. And Jesus said, if this judge that doesn't care about God or man would grant a request because of her continual repetition, what do you think your loving Father in heaven who cares more about you than anything will do when you repeat your needs to him? He taught we should practice repetition in prayer. It's not always needed. Sometimes the answer comes rather quickly. Anybody ever had someone deathly critically ill? What, you prayed one time they'd get well and you quit? No, you didn't. You prayed it every time you bowed your head. In fact, you probably prayed it every time you even gave it a thought whether you bowed your head or not. And you don't have to bow your head and close your eyes to pray. We can pray anytime, anywhere. That's the idea of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17. We need to use the weapon of prayer. And Jesus prayed in Matthew 26, 39, 42, and 44, Let this cup pass from me, if, Father, it's your will. However... If it's not, then I want your will to be done and not mine. But he prayed three times right there in the same prayer. Please don't make me go through this. And then we go to Paul. You remember Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 8? He prayed about three times to have that thorn in the flesh removed. And finally God said, no! And Paul understood the answer and then he felt a whole lot better about things. But he didn't quit asking until he got an answer. He kept praying the same prayer until he got an answer. I cannot imagine that for some reason that would be wrong today when it was right for Paul and for the only begotten Son of God. But here's the negative of that. It may be there's somebody in this audience right now that is not a child of God. And you say, now wait a minute, that's not your judgment to make. No, it's not. So let's let God make that judgment. God says that his family is the church. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 15 the pillar and the ground of truth, the household of God, the church. The household of God, the family of God is the church. Okay. So I've got to be in the church to be a child of God then. If I'm going to be in God's family, I've got to be in the church. Well, the church was established in Acts chapter 2. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 47, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So now I need to say, okay, what's this saved business? Well, I just start backing up and trying to do some studying on that. And I found out that Jesus himself said in Mark 16, 16, He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. Well, there's salvation. He who does not believe shall be condemned. And then I come on over to Acts chapter 2. And in verse 36, Peter said, this same Jesus whom you, talking to the Jews that day of Pentecost, whom you have crucified, God has made him both Lord and Christ. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? What are they asking? We have sinned against God. What do I need to do to be saved? That's what they wanted to know. That's what they asked. 
Then Peter answered and said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And in Acts chapter 22, verse 16, as Paul was recounting in one of the defenses that he made, which when he defended himself, he always preached the gospel. That was his defense, was the gospel of Christ. And so he was recounting his own conversion as recorded in Acts chapter 9 and and other places where he met Jesus on the road to Damascus that day. And he was saying how that this Jewish man, this Christian, came named Ananias and said to him, Saul, what are you waiting on? Arise, be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And then I go to Romans 6, verse 4. And I find there that verses 3 and 4, where that by baptism we are buried with him, by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also shall rise to walk in newness of life. Now I want us to think about those four verses for a minute. In Mark 16, 16, does Jesus say that saved comes before or after baptism? Well, let's see, he who believes and is baptized, shall we say. Well, in that verse, it comes after. The preacher, Romans 5.1, says you're saved by faith. Yes, it does. Romans 10.13 says, call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Yes, it does. But what does Mark 16.16 say? Well, gee, okay, in that verse, preacher, saved is after baptism. All right, let's go back to Acts 2.38. Now, in Acts 2.38, does remission of sins come before or after baptism? Well, it comes after repentance. Yes, it does. But does it come before or after baptism? Well, okay, I'll give you that one, too. In Acts 2.38, remission of sins is only after baptism, not before. All right, now let's go on over to Acts 22.16. Washing away sins, before or after baptism? Well, yeah, but before or after baptism? Okay, after baptism, all right, fine. Romans 6.4, that newness of life, does that happen before or after baptism? After. All right, now, how many times does God have to say something for it to be true? Once. Four times in the last minute we have seen where God says salvation or its equivalent only happens after baptism, not before. Not a soul on the face of this planet can argue with that. Not one. I don't care who he is. I don't care where he went to school. I don't care how many times he's on television. Those four verses say what they say, and I could point out four to ten more just like that that say the same thing. Now, Either those salvation by faith passages include baptism or God's a liar. It's the bottom line. So if I want to be saved, I need to have faith in Christ or I'll die in my sins, John 8, 24. I need to do that repenting that Acts 2.38 talks about, brought about by godly sorrow, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. And I need to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. If I'm ashamed of Him, He'll be ashamed of me. Matthew 10, 32 and 33. And of necessity, I must be baptized, which, as we already noted in Romans 6, 3, is a burial in water for the purpose of having my sins forgiven. When I do that, I am saved. When I am saved, 
the Lord adds me, Acts 2.47, to the church, which is, 1 Timothy 3.15, the family of God. Therefore, when I am added to the church at the point of my salvation, which is when I come up out of the water of baptism, then I become a child in the family of God. And Jesus told Nicodemus the same thing that night in Palestine in John 3 when he said, except you are born of the water and the spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And in Matthew 16, he used the term church and kingdom interchangeably, indicating that God Almighty himself knows they're the same thing. Have you been baptized for the remission of your sins? This is not my judgment. This is God's judgment. If not, I'm not his child. And if I'm not his child, prayer is not in my arsenal. Prayer is not a privilege for me. 